0: This program is a production of the Reformed Forum, an organization devoted to producing and distributing Reformed theological content for a connected age. Online at reformedforum.org. This is Christ the Center, episode number 209. Today we're bringing to you highlights from 2011. Welcome to Christ the Center, Doctrine for Life, your weekly conversation of Reformed Theology. My name is Camden Busey, and this is episode number 209. Uh, Today I'm here by myself, but I have a bunch of clips with me. Uh, At the end of the year, we like to bring together a bunch of highlights uh, from the previous year. So today we have a bunch of clips uh, from some of our best episodes of 2011. We have been very blessed to be able to bring to you all of these recordings through the year. Uh, We've been fortunate uh, and blessed by the Lord to be able to do this consistently, having a new episode every Friday morning since January 2008. Uh, And it's strictly because of the wonderful support uh, that we have from listeners like you, I would encourage you, uh, in celebration of another completed year and looking forward to another yet to come, uh, please visit us online at org slash donate to help uh, us to continue to produce and distribute all of our programs free of charge. We are a non 501 501c3 organization, and uh, if you're listening to this, right when it comes out, you still have a day or two to to give and to get credit, receive uh, a tax deduction for the year 2011. So hurry up today, continue to support us and help us uh, to bring more and more Reformed Theology to you and to others who'd like to hear it. In our first clip, we are very pleased to welcome back Daryl Hart in episode number 156. Uh, he spoke about Machen's warrior children, particularly looking in this clip at Jay Gress and Machen and the two institutions that were founded out of the controversy in the early 20th century. Now, certainly, when we when we consider Machen and all that he was and all that he did, um, we usually uh, focus on the two larger institutions he was instrumental in in beginning. Uh, as I mentioned before, Westminster and the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. And from our vantage point, those are very good things. Uh, Mark Knoll, uh, back in 1987, he was an elder in the OPC then, and um, he was bringing up. The cost of of Machen fighting and, and maybe what some of the fallout of that was, and what what it cost Machen to do. Um, he writes here, and I'm quoting from you, quoting from him. So, uh, here. So
1: if, if you get it wrong, I got it wrong. <laughs> right, I got. It.
0: Well, I've got an out. I guess
1: that's what it that's means. That's
0: why. Um, but uh, Noel observed that the cost of Machen's contentiousness was large. He undermined the effectiveness of those reformed and evangelical individuals who chose to remain at Princeton Seminary. With the Presbyterian Mission Board and in the Northern Presbyterian Church, furthermore, according to Noel, machin left successors ill equipped to deal with the more practical matters of evangelism, social outreach, and devotional nurture. What happened? What did machin do Oh uh,
1: well um, the the question is what could you what could you save from princeton and the presbyterian church and if you stayed in would you have continued to to um dwindle away whatever you you stood for i guess that's and and i think mark looks at it differently than than i do um i i'm if i someone still needs to and i've thought about doing it but someone still needs to do it uh, to do a study of conservatives in the PCUSA after the founding of the OPC to see what they did, how effective they were. They still had an outlet. One of the institutions that Machen, since you brought it up, institutions that Machen founded, one of the institutions he founded was the Presbyterian Guardian, which I was very happy to devote a chapter to in the um, forthcoming history of the OPC, which was unofficially the OPC's magazine, but it was also a place where OPCers could engage in some of their polemics without. Having to worry about um, the reputation of the de- institutional affiliations, so it was mm-hmm. it was a parachurch organization, but it was clearly committed to serving the OPC. Anyway, he f- he founded that. The other magazine that conservatives had was Machen was also involved with um, Samuel Craig, the the uh, owner, original owner of Presbyterian Reform Publishing, uh, f- had founded Christianity Today, the original Christianity Today in nineteen thirty three or two. Um, and when Machen and, and Craig broke over the independent board, uh, Machen felt it was important to have a new magazine, hence the Presbyterian Guardian. The Christianity, but Christianity Today kept publishing until 1947. We should was, mention
0: this is different than right, the current publication right. called Christianity
1: Today. Although John argues, John Mithra argues, that the people who founded Christianity Today took their name mm. from perhaps the original without necessarily acknowledging it. Um, so that would be one place to look at conservatives in the PCUSA, but it's also the case that there were times in the, in the forties. Now, part of this was because of the war, but even after the war where they, where they were putting out maybe two or three issues a year, as opposed to trying to do a, a bi-weekly, which is what they were doing originally. So I, part of the point I'm trying to make is that conservatives just kind of ran out of steam in the, in the PCUSA. Um, and so in some ways it seems that Machen felt he was getting out, not when the getting was good to only have 5,000 come into your communion is not necessarily a great, a great thing. But I think he realized in the thirties that the longer they stayed in, the more that depleted they would be. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is, this was another calculation more recently among the, the Dutch reformed in the Christian Reformed church and the URC. When do you, how long do you stay? When do you get out or not? Um, Machin had a much clearer, sharper issue. The independent board clarified things and and forced the PCUSA to act in certain ways that made him either a hero or a victim or whatever your perspective on Machin might be. Um, but back to to Noel's point, um, you know, I I think if you compare Clarence McCartney, who was on the original board at Westminster Seminary stayed in the PCUSA his entire career, basically operated as a congregational minister within the church and had no institutional outlet. So not only was he perhaps not true necessarily to his Presbyterian convictions or at least polity, but also um, who was going to succeed McCartney at First Presbyterian Church uh, Pittsburgh and what, mechanisms did you have in place to ensure that that would be the case similar situation faces so-called evangelicals in the church of scotland or mm-hmm.
2: so in in the princeton context um have you what kind of evidence do you see with uh Gerhardus voss sticking around princeton and how that went either right. personally for him or i mean he's it, you you would expect him to go to westminster but he didn't i think
1: the big issue for anyone at Princeton, who was conservative, had stayed, was pensioned. their their financial. And this is among, I mean, there there are various liabilities to Gary North's book, Cross Fingers. Um, But his financial angle on the controversy is quite helpful for showing, um, especially the the investments and pension Mm -hmm. plans, what made it very difficult for uh, older ministers who would build up retirement funds to leave the church, and especially at a, during a time of depression. Yeah, um, and
2: Robert Dick Wilson is a prime example of someone who sacrificed, you know, financially like crazy around right. that time because he right. he was, you know, he died a year later or whenever that was. Um, so he would have had a lot of money come to him had he stuck around. I think.
1: Right. Yeah. I don't. I don't know what his situation was, although, um, Oswald T. Alice from whom Westminster originally rented the homes down on uh, Pine Street, Um, the original place of Westminster. He he was independently wealthy, but he stayed in the uh, PCUSA his entire (laughs) life, and and even uh, Van Til preached his his funeral sermon at Mm. Bryn Mawr Presbyterian Church, one of the Mm. toniest of the mainline churches. Um, So... uh, Anyway, I, I think it's a, I think it's a really tough call about when when to leave when, but there was a clear difference, especially if someone looks at the correspondence between Samuel Craig and and Machen in the thirties, that Craig thought the church was far healthier than I think it was. I think Machen was much more realistic of of the state of the church.
0: In episode number 160, we welcomed Carl Truman back to the program to discuss his book, Histories and Fallacies, which is an introduction to history for history students, and we spoke to him about the study of historiography. Now, one of the things you deal with uh, much in this book, Histories and Fallacies, is the understanding of historiography. Could you provide uh, for the, the new initiate, the neophyte, uh, just a brief Overview or, or definition of what historiography is and what it might how it might differ from just history in general.
3: Sure, historiography is if you like it's the history of history. <laughs> uh, even historical books, historical narratives—they are historical actions themselves. They're mm-hmm. done by a particular person at a particular point in time. So, in order to understand, for example, uh, take my book on John Owen, my book on John Owen. To set that in context, well, it. It's, I would say, quite clearly to somebody who knows the subject of 17th century studies, a book written in the wake of the kind of stuff that Richard Muller was doing for the decade prior to me writing that. And I'm building on the insights and the ideas that he has. And that applies in all variations of the historical discipline. Every historian is not only standing on the shoulders of giants in terms of the material that he or she is looking at, but also standing on the shoulders of giants in terms of the methods... Right. You know, that they are applying to that material.
0: I, uh, I, as as we talk about historiography, I'm reminded of a, an essay that V. Phillips Long wrote in a collection on biblical studies, biblical interpretation, foundations Sp- of contemporary yeah, interpretation. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. in there, and he has a a great chapter on historiography, and he just talks about how the sources and the the items that you choose to select are always going to demonstrate to some degree a purpose or an intent in the way that you portray yeah. the events. This typically goes back to biblical studies where we talk about the differences in the Gospels and, and those sorts of things. And we are always wanting something objective or unbiased. We can get into that distinction a little bit later. Um, but the idea is that, the, as you mentioned, the historian is very much shaping the story as he or she is telling it. Yeah. The question is, can, can we escape that subjectivity, uh, which is, is uh, an issue for many. I think I would
3: set aside the language of subjectivity there, and I would certainly want to acknowledge that, yes, the historian shapes the story. Trivial example, when I'm working on a 17th century figure, uh, I read a, a narrow range of texts. Mm-hmm. If I'm working on how debates about Christology develop in the 17th century, I'm going to spend comparatively little time on texts that deal with farming practices in the 17th century. I'm being selective, so I'm forming uh, a fairly narrow canon of material that I'm looking at. But I would also want to say that the the texts also shape the the historian. It's not just a one-way street. That historians change their minds, that I could come across a text on Christology that indicates to me quite clearly that certain texts on agricultural practices in the 17th century are relevant for what I'm doing. And that would cause me to broaden the canon of texts that I'm looking at. So I think there is a, a symbiotic relationship between the, the historian and the historical artifacts at which he or she is looking. It's mm-hmm. not just a one-way street. Good historians don't simply go into the archives to find evidence that proves there a priori thesis, mm-hmm. They're also open to having their, their exploratory hypotheses and theses tested and changed by the material they find. Mm-hmm. It's not a perfect science, but it seems to work in 99 out of 100 cases. Mm-hmm.
0: Winston Smith joined us on episode 161 to speak about marriage and marriage counseling, and we asked him about Christ's relationship to his church and how that's pictured and imaged in the marriage relationship. We were speaking before the recording started about a, a recent video that Lane Tipton recorded and he yeah. emphasizing his, his key point of all of his theologizing, which is a union with Christ, that it is central. And his point is very much in harmony with some themes that uh, John Piper draws out in his book, uh, God is the gospel. He has this great example uh, of, of his own marriage in which he, he, for instance, could say that if he got in a fight with his wife and uh, she was upset with him and stopped doing the laundry, there's a couple different ways that he could go about remedying the situation. One incorrect way would be to say, well, I want to reconcile with my wife so that my laundry gets done again. <clears throat> that's, that's mistaking the be- a benefit yeah. that comes from a relationship, from the real important part of the relationship, which is the, right. the love and the person the personality at the other end of that relationship tip tipton will say union with Christ is central because that is ultimately what we receive in the gospel is a relationship, a union with Jesus Christ Mm -hmm. justification, adoption, sanctification and all other benefits are manifestations of that and Mm -hmm. are central Mm -hmm. or key. Mm -hmm. But the real nugget, the 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 central point of of the gospel is a relationship. It's, 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 The reconciliation that we have in the union. So, marriage, in many ways, as you've already said, is is about the relationship. The benefits are also important to deal with, but they're not central.
4: Right. It's uh, maybe another way of putting it's confusing means and ends. Yeah. We confuse the the blessings of marriage Mm -hmm. with the end of marriage, uh, what its purpose is, and um, and here is where you know Scripture paints a picture for us. That that gets to that deeper reality. I mean, you can't the, when you look at the New Testament, it just won't. It doesn't talk about marriage. Actually, doesn't talk about talk about any relationship without referring to the person of Christ. Every relationship and marriage, in a in a special way, is. Um, I was going to say it's an opportunity. It's more than an opportunity. Marriage is intended to to embody the love of Christ for His people. Yeah, and that that is in a sense an end unto itself. And your experience in doing that, it may feel good, it may feel bad, and, and God cares about that. But embodying the love of Christ, that's what could have deeper meaning than that. Mm-hmm. And that kind of gets to the, the idea of ordinary extraordinary. Mm. So what, what seems ordinary to you, a fight about laundry. Why would God care about a fight about laundry? Because even in your fight about the laundry – There's an opportunity for Christ to be made manifest. You can be manipulative to figure out how to get your wife to do the laundry, and that would embody Satan, right? That would embody the devil's interests. Or you can graciously, patiently, sacrificially, with (laughs) long-suffering, engage in that problem, and Christ becomes manifest. And uh, that has that has universal significance and lasting yeah. importance to it. The laundry just is the, the opportunity for that to happen. Another
0: key topic on that I would imagine is uh, sexual issues or the, the right. treatment of sex, which in in degenerate marriages can be treated as an end in itself. Right. When you mistake uh, the whole point of what sex is supposed to be, uh, that mm-hmm. symbol of love and that act of love um, between mm-hmm. a man and a wife, which ultimately points forward to, again, our, our love with Right. Between the church and Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. I, I can see how this model could, could be very useful in all sorts of issues that come up in marriage.
4: Yeah. I mean, the sexual one, I mean, I think we have something incredibly important and helpful to share with our culture because our, our culture thinks there's liberation and freedom in just saying, hey, let's be real about sex. It's, it's biological, we've got these appetites that have to be satisfied, and it happens to also be recreational. So you' you're, you're a biological entity, you need to do it, and it's fun to do it. so let's just figure out all the possible ways that we can help people do it. Yeah. and of course, it leads to sorts of all sorts of brokenness and disease and unplanned pregnancies and and um, and scripture just says that's just too shallow. that's uh-huh. just too that's too small of a of a purpose for sexuality and um, and again, without blushing, scripture would say, even in sexuality, God is glorified. Christ is made manifest that if, mm-hmm. you really, if you really take apart the experience of sexual intimacy and it's done well, it actually embodies the same truths about love that, that we learn elsewhere in Scripture, that, that healthy sexual intimacy between husband and wife is, is all about honest, careful communication, safety, self-control you know patience serving mm-hmm. the other you know and so here's here's again here's another way even even in sexual intimacy that that the love of christ can be embodied stripping away shame without reducing celebration or enjoyment but actually heightening it and and so that we don't have to be ashamed or embarrassed of it
0: in episode number 162, we welcomed Mark Garcia back to the program to discuss the current justification landscape. What are the different views that are out there and what are their salient features? Let me pass things over to you and uh, ask you just in general about this landscape. Uh, justification keeps popping up and, and as well it should be, but we've encountered several theories and different formulations of the doctrine in the past. What are some of those and what are some of the dangers involved in getting soteriology wrong
5: yeah well thanks again very much for uh, having me on to talk about what will always be uh in the life of the church a very important set of questions and concerns and uh vigor in discussion is not just uh, defensible it's commendable when mm-hmm. it's carried out well and we we do this because the gospel is important in fact it's uh uh properly understood the life of the church mm-hmm. and so we, we need to be careful about such things um so yeah i'm happy to um uh, to just provide a, uh, a brief window into the uh, ideas that uh, mark off new perspectives on Paul and the Federal Vision on the Union with Christ question, um, and, I, and I hope that's helpful. But on the way in there, um, can I, uh, you know, regarding the, um, uh, the state of affairs and the landscape, as you mentioned, mm-hmm. um, we're, we're looking at, um, can I mention that uh, scene in uh, Jaws, where uh chief brody is trying to persuade amity islands mayor vaughn to close the beach because of the shark um this wonderful scene the mayor says martin it's all psychological you yell barracuda everybody says huh what (laughs) you yell shark we've got a panic on our hands on the fourth of july um there's a lot of shark yelling going on um when in many cases we only need to be yelling barracuda. Um, Certainly there are sharks in the water, but uh, not everything that swims um, is going to eat us. We have the considerable disadvantage these days of trying to work through really important questions of justification and union with Christ in what might be called a frenzied atmosphere. Uh, where suspicions quickly rise to the roof um, and it's created a defensive posture with regard to any idea that doesn't quite sound like what, um, you know, popular writers or conference speakers may, in some cases, insist that the Bible and tradition have always said. Mm -hmm. Um, There's little room in that kind of a climate of discourse for anything like good scholarship. And maybe that's why we don't have a whole lot of that going around, to, to be candid. Um, but the losers here are not only the good ministers and licentiates whose orthodoxy is suddenly called into question for sounding different um, and maybe sounding more biblical and Reformed than um, we might expect uh, those tradition, the, the Reformed tradition to sound like. The loser here is also more generally the Reformed churches. Um, because there will be no reason for hope of positive theological development and progress, things which are necessary as part of our ecclesial sanctification, uh, so long as, you know, what I've called elsewhere, a drive-by theology mindset uh, continues to to set the terms of discussion. Um, With this question, union with Christ, we really need to be attentive to this. this idea of union is really important for the Reformed tradition since, as I've argued elsewhere, and, and as you know, careful readers of the text of the tradition would immediately recognize, the Reformed tradition began as a view on union with Christ. Um, it's why, historically and theologically, there is such a thing as the Reformed tradition at all. Uh, The context for the birth of the Reformed tradition was the Eucharistic controversy that climaxed in the 1550s. How to understand the mode of Christ's presence and therefore the mode of our communion with him at the Lord's Supper. Mm -hmm. But it was clear to the participants back then, even if it's unfortunately unclear to us sometimes now, that the Eucharistic controversy, because it involved questions of Christ, the Spirit, union with Christ, grace – it could not be separated from the ongoing soteriological controversy, the controversies over salvation, uh, over justification in relationship to sanctification, the kind of necessity that good works have with respect to salvation and so forth. And so if we just uh, were to sit down and read carefully through uh, Calvin, for instance, and his um, uh, works against uh, Westfall and Hesius. Um, To see an example of this from a time when the Reformed and Lutheran theologies of Eucharistic and therefore of saving union with Christ are being sorted out, what you find is that the Reformed tradition is coming into life, as it were, as a distinct tradition, precisely in terms of this convergence of different forms of the question of union with Christ, which are always regarded as belonging very much together. So this is an important question for us, and… For good reason, do we want to be careful in in thinking through how to understand union with Christ. Uh, Now, as far as the federal vision and new perspectives, um, what I try to um, encourage um, my my friends to to keep in mind is that um, we we ought to deal with them differently. Mm -hmm. Um, The federal vision, in my view, is not profitably engaged as a wide-ranging theological and academic program, um, but instead at the level of more specific questions or topics and, and concerns. Um, I, I've, I've referred in the past to the Federal Vision and Conversations, that is, uh, as a reactionary movement, but I want to make clear it is a reactionary movement, but not one necessarily with a reactionary spirit. Um, they aren 't the same thing. Um, these are you know mostly um, good men, good ministers, and theologians who are engaging the texts of scripture and other reformed tradition uh, with a view to certain concerns within the reformed ecclesiastical and theological tradition, and they are reacting um, to Weaknesses, whether real or perceived, uh, in the, the, the current state of affairs in the Reformed ecclesiastical world. And that's really the driving impulse of their proposals. Uh, so it's reactionary, but that isn't to say that it's just uh, you know, kind of a knee-jerk reaction. Mm-hmm. Um, the spirit is, is not quite like that. The new perspective, on the other hand, this is, this is a, a more programmatic reality. Um, this is a, a an example of, of the shifts that happen in the always-moving, developing wider world of biblical scholarship. And there's good reason for addressing the new perspective and better, the new perspectives on Paul as a program, since that's how it originated and that's how it functions. There are certain generally similar views on Judaism and on Paul that have really reoriented in a programmatic fashion views on Paul's writings, and in a very comprehensive way. Um, That doesn't mean, at the same time, that everything in exegesis by a proponent of the New Perspective is, you know, affected, so to speak, by someone's New Perspective credentials, but it does have a programmatic air to it, ever since uh, Krister Stendhal's uh, work on Luther and the introspective conscience of the West. Um, Union does figure there, even though Stendhal's Uh, Essay and new perspective work generally um, uh, originally didn't really have a focus on what he was calling mystical union any more than it did on justification, actually, Um, but more on Jewish-Gentile relations. So we need to be careful linking new perspectives as well as federal vision um, with union with Christ. If anybody emphasizes union with Christ, ah, there's some new perspective thinking going on or there's some federal vision thinking going on, Mm. that's just not a helpful or, or an accurate way of going about it. In episode 163,
0: we welcome Dr. K. Scott Oliphant back to the program, this time to discuss the Clark Van Til controversy. We get into issues about the Trinity, about logic, about God's incomprehensibility, his knowledge, analogical knowledge, all sorts of fun things. Uh, here's a wonderful clip from that episode. In a related note, uh, this is germane to the discussion and the, uh, the controversy between Clark and Vantill, or we should say the Clarkians and the Vantillians in the Church. It wasn't necessarily a one-to-one controversy. It might, it might be cast that way, but it got more heated among the followers of the two men in the Presbytery. Uh, but this issue is that of uh, Trinitarian theology. Um, what are some of the differences here? Uh, we, we oftentimes speak of person or hypostasis in, in our discussions of the Trinity. Uh, what were Clark's views of personality? How did he go about defining a person, and how might that differ uh, from Cornelius Van Til?
6: Yeah, I, I think toward the end of his life, you know, he got more and more enamored with uh, the kind of rational uh, uh, process and and um, wanted to find wanted to define persons as kind of a collection of propositions. And because of that, as I say in my book, Reasons for Faith, um, in his book on the Incarnation, he says we just need to go ahead and admit that Christ is two persons. Now, I, I think, you know, you have to look at that um, and wince because in the, in the history of 2,000 years, there's a reason why neither Catholic nor Protestant would ever go there, that oh. that, that that is uh, that is the definition of heresy when you start to move into – historianism or, or Eutychianism or any of those kinds yeah. of Christological isms, you're in trouble. Clark moved there. And, he, you know, he should have been more careful in that. He should have. I, I, think, I think the lack of – should, I think the emphasis on philosophy, the lack of historical understanding of, of theology at that point did him in. Um, Van Til used the, the phrase, as we all know now, uh, one person, three persons. He used it uh, very, very seldom. It was not a mantra for him. He wouldn't have gone to the mat for it. He was making the point that Hodge and Bob Bavink make, which is that the one essence of God is not an impersonal, abstract essence. And um, as you've said on your program, and I think your listeners already know, Tipton's done the job of showing how this is uh, consistent and how you can make this sort of claim. Van Til was not trying to be crassly contradictory. It was interesting when I, when I first came here in 1991, about a month into my job, Unsolicited in the mail comes a pamphlet, uh, Van Til, uh, the man and the myth, <laughs> and it was uh, you know it was a a, a a pamphlet sent by the author that was uh, meant to, to blast Van Til and to show how he was heretical. Um, it was it was it was superficial. It was not very. It was not done very well. A pamphlet. Um, yeah, it was a pamphlet. was superficial
2: and yeah, oh, it was a pamphlet superficial.
6: And you know the interesting thing is I think people should recognize this um, a pamphlet like that. Um, of necessity undermines the, the Church of Jesus Christ. If Van Til was a her- heretic, the OPC would have picked it out. They weren't, you know, they weren't dumb on these matters, and, and that's for the Church to decide. And the Church knew what Van Til was teaching, and um, his his position, as he even says in Intro Systematic Theology, it's, it's just following along on the same kind of concern that Hodge had, the same kind of concern that Bovink had. So there was nothing that radical about it, and he wasn't trying to be crassly contradictory. Now, when Clark comes along and says Christ is two persons, I think we have real issues there. You have other issues, too,
0: with um, defining a person as a collection of propositions. Then you need to go in the direction of having real distinctions in the Godhead. If there really are three persons, there must be distinctions. And if you've taken Clark's definition, there ends up being some impersonal essence of which the persons don't exhaust or overlap. So you don't end up with a full divine Exhaustion. You don't end up with a a perichoresis Is a technical word, and so there is a portion of the Son that is not known or or um, not indwelt by the Spirit and by the Father. And you can make that that statement for any com- any combination among the yeah. members of the Trinity.
6: Well, once you move that dire- in that direction, Christology, you're going to move that direction in, in the Trinity, even if he didn't say exactly. You would have to hold it. So, uh, you know, I think this is a I think this is a product of I think Clark had the right impetus. He, he was going at it, you know, basically, generally the right way. But once you pour, you know, a sort of absolutistic view of logic, that is a view of logic that the church, I'm not saying Van Til, the church has never held since its mm-hmm. creedal development. Once you pour that into your um, theology – Trouble looms, and it and it did, and it does. Uh, I think Mueller even emphasizes this when he talks about a kind of move toward rationalism, spe- especially with respect to natural theology and people like uh, Bartholomew Keckerman and Allsitt and others. That that move came because logic was given a place in the theology that it wasn't given historically, mm-hmm. particularly in the writing of the creeds. So again, if if Clark had just looked at the creeds and say, Why in the world would people say? that Christ is one person with two. what are they doing here? If he had just looked at that more carefully, I think he would have had to dispense with his, his understanding of logic.
0: James Dolzell stopped by to speak about God's simplicity in episode number 185. Uh, this is the doctrine that God is without parts. Here's James speaking with us about this subject.
7: Um, and I would say, in terms of evangelicals right now, there isn't a movement consensus. Uh, I think to the extent that many uh, evangelical theologians and those and, and evangelicals interested in philosophy have been influenced by Alvin Plantinga and by possible world semantics, to that extent, the doctrine is in great danger. Um, mm. I, I think that, that uh, entire approach to philosophy in its very methods... Is, tends to predispose uh, one against divine simplicity, uh, particularly because uh, the general assumption among analytic philosophers is ontological mm. Uh
8: And
7: now what do you mean by that? Yeah, uh, define, many, many people, define many define people yeah, are sure. familiar. <laughs> yeah, sure. we're, yeah, we're already well, in the. We speak the about this
0: in usually the the world of apologetics and epistemology in our circles because it comes up in Gordon Clark and Cornelius Van
7: Til. Sure. We, we hear
9: uni- where our red flag goes up. Right? I mean,
7: essentially, <laughs> what I mean by that broadly is that uh, the way that we speak about things like existence, essence, attributes, properties, whether we ascribe them to God or creatures, we essentially uh, mean those things or signify those things in the same sense. So that when we say that man, man exists and God exists – uh, what we indicate by existence is a single order of existence, and the things that generally characterize creaturely existence also characterize divine existence, except of course the limitate uh, certain limitations. And so that God is, uh, for their way of thinking, the highest instance of being, like or the highest u- instance of creation. uber
0: version of man. Uh,
7: what I would, what I'm arguing for and assuming throughout my work is, is not ontological univism, in which God is one among many beings, but rather ontological uh, analogism or an analogy of being, Mm -hmm. properly qualified, in which God is the sufficient explanation and reason for being and is in himself the exemplar and efficient cause of being, but as such is not an instance of being in general, so that we make a hard distinction Uh, not a simply graded distinction, you know, up a scale of being, but a hard Mm -hmm. distinction between the order of God's very existence uh, and essence and the order of all creaturely, um, I would say this, similitude or likeness
0: to God. In episode number 192, we spoke about the founding of the Free Church of Scotland with Sandy Finlayson. Here's a wonderful clip with Mr. Finlayson speaking about the subject. Let's speak about the right of patronage a little in the mm-hmm. Veto Act, as okay. we set the stage for many of these great figures we're going to be speaking about. Okay. What are those two things, and, and what were their significance in, in causing and bringing about this okay. disruption?
8: Well, as Carl has already mentioned, under the under patronage, um, it was it, the way that ministers were placed in parish, parishes was by appointment by the local landowner. Um, sometimes by the local council uh, if they were in towns. Um, As the Church of Scotland enters the 19th century, however, evangelicals within the church are expressing real concern over the spiritual independence of the church Mm -hmm. because as much as the establishment principle um, says that there is to be a link between the church and the state, Uh, If you look at the original language of the Westminster Confession of Faith on this, they make it very clear that the Church is to be spiritually independent. And so, um, in the 19th century, the Church of Scotland, the the Church of Scotland evangelicals are arguing that the Church had the sole right to decide matters that had to do with the spiritual, spiritual, spiritual matters in the Church, and particularly the appointment of ministers. So in 1834, the Church of Scotland actually passes something called the Veto Act. Mm. And what the Veto Act was was an an attempt to restrict the power of patronage by giving to male heads of families the right to veto the parish patron's appointment of minister. Um, So that was an, an attempt on the part of the Church of Scotland, the evangelicals within the Church of Scotland, to reform the system.
0: Was it a, like a blackball situation or is there a, a, a majority vote or how did they weigh these vetoes?
8: Well, what, the, what they said was that in order for a minister to be appointed to a parish and, or, and ordained or installed by the presbytery, he had to have a majority vote okay. by, by male heads of families. I see. Um, the name could only be proposed
3: by the patron, presumably. That, that
8: is correct. The name was proposed by the patron, but the congregation had the right under this act, to say, no, we don't think this is the right man for us. Sure. Uh, now, in reality, there were many situations where there was good cooperation between patrons and parishes. And he doesn't um, want to hold... Land full of people that don't like him, you know. Exactly. Presumably. It, it, exa- <laughs> exactly. So, I mean, in, in many circumstances, these things were worked out informally, but it was becoming increasingly difficult to mm-hmm. do that. So the Church of Scotland passes the Patronage Act in 1834, and um, there's an immediate test of it. Um, there's a parish in Perthshire where one of – out of a total of 336 heads of family – Only two of them agreed to the appointment (laughs) of the minister. Um, So when the presbytery got this information, they refused to ordain the the man. And then he sued. He took the presbytery to court, Mm -hmm. and the courts found in his favor, and the courts directed that he be ordained and installed in the parish. Mm. Now, ultimately, it took a long time— it took a long time for this to work its way through the courts. And I just checked this morning. He actually was not installed in the parish until after the disruption. He wasn't installed until 1843. Um, so, I mean, it took it took a long time. But that was the first test. And then over between 1834 and 1843, what came to be known as the Ten Years Conflict, uh, there were a series of these situations which escalated, frankly. mm mm-hmm. um, and which ultimately brought a, took, took, the, took the Church of Scotland in the direction that, where, the, where the disruption happened in 1843.
0: Perhaps the most spoken about episode of the year was Christ the Center episode number 200, in which we welcomed Lane Tipton to the program to discuss the doctrine of union with Christ. In this clip, he discusses a few Lutheran theologians and the features of
10: their doctrine of justification. Is there any renovative feature at all Actual, consequential, conditional, potential. Is there any renovative feature in Calvin's doctrine of justification? Absolutely not. He is what makes the Roman Catholic tradition furious. Because here you have a person who affirms a gratuitous, forensic imputation of righteousness as the sole ground for the believer's justification received by faith alone. The thing that's so fascinating and troubling to me, disconcerting to me about the Lutheran view is that both Pieper and Muller following Melanchthon, standard post-Reformation Lutheran soteriology, both of them ascribe to justification up front a forensic core But it has a renovative effect. Sneak it in the back door almost. They sneak... Well, think of this. (laughs) What is the essential nature of justification in the Roman Catholic tradition? It is, one word, transformative. Yes, sir. It is transformative. It is renovative. The Lutherans are wanting to oppose that, and therefore they start with gratuitous forensic justification. But then they're in a real bind, because... They start with justification and they say, oh gosh, we have to recognize that justification is related to union with Christ, to the mystical union, and to sanctification. So what did they do? Well, having taken an unbiblical starting point that cannot be substantiated by exegesis, they're in a, they're in a bind because this is going to start looking uh, peculiar. They have to say justification itself as an, as an abstract Act of God right. divorce from union somehow contains within itself renovative consequences, renovative features that are that that derive from justification itself, so that justification in a way that is similar to the Roman Catholic tradition winds up being what consequentially renovative, and so I look at that and I start saying to some of the Um, to some of the brothers who want to um, champion the Lutheran view as the consistent Protestant view, I look at them and say, look, if you want to oppose Roman Catholicism consistently, you cannot take the Lutheran view because what Rome has walking right through the front door, Lutherans close the front door and then let it in the back door. That is a renovative feature to justification. It is only the Reformed in the likes of John Calvin, more recently oh Richard Gaffin, people like that. It's only the Reformed who have a consistently and unrelentingly forensic conception of justification from beginning to end. The Lutherans don't. Now, look, that is problematic because of the um, the, the potential to move the Lutherans along a renovative line relative to their doctrine of justification. And that's a substantial difference. And I think we need to um, continue. Here's my motto, read the fine print on these proposals. Don't just let slogans and maxims rule. Read the fine print, read the dogmaticians, read what primacy of justification Lutherans are saying, and you'll start to, I think, you'll start to have some concerns, some legitimate theological concerns about their formulation.
0: In Christ the Center, episode number 203, Jim Cassidy spoke about Karl Barth, particularly uh, the, the criticisms of Barth by Cornelius Van Til. Here is Jim Cassidy speaking about the afterword uh, written by Bruce McCormick in the book Carl Bart and American Evangelicalism.
11: Well, let me preface my remarks by saying that I I think that this discussion uh, about Van Til and Bart is an important discussion to have, um, and I think that both sides of the aisle, if you will, um, see, uh, perceive misunderstanding on the other side. Uh, so I think that there can be. There can be benefit by mutually interacting uh, on on this issue. Um, how did Bart explain himself? How did Bart? What was the essence of his teaching? And uh, where you know what was Van Til's um, critique? What was the essence of his critique? How did he you know? And and make sure we come down on some you know firm understanding on on stuff. I I think Van Til and Bart both have the distinct privilege of being greatly misunderstood. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know. Absolutely. Um, both of them have been misunderstood. Um, and so even by conservative – I'm talking about Van Til now – even by conservative Reformed theologians uh, have read Van Til and walked away with a misunderstanding mm-hmm. of him. So, you know, it's not, it's not unusual that people are misunderstanding him because – You know, he was writing in uh, in in English, which was a second language. Um, And uh, you know, he always wished
0: he could write like Machen. He always he wished he could write clearer. (laughs) He
11: didn't he didn't have that that command of the English language the way you know he would have liked to. And um, had he written in Dutch instead, it may have come out clearer if you know how to read Dutch. But um, uh, he didn't do that. He wrote in English, and and you know, wasn't always as clear as he could have been. But uh, when McCormick, I was very clear when McCormick picks up Van Til and, and starts to uh, to interact with him, um, he, and he McCormick seems to to misunderstand uh, Van Til at a number of points, including the nature of his critique of Kant. I mean, that's the way the article opens up. It's it's basically got two parts. Um, McCormick. Uh, Number one states that Van Til has misunderstood Kant's epistemology, and uh, secondly, he argues that Van Til erred uh, in his understanding of how view uh, of how uh, Bart viewed uh, God's revelation with regard to time. Yeah, Yeah. you know um, whether or not, and the direct revelation discussion comes in here as we were having it last in the last episode. uh, Whether or not. Uh, Van Til got Bart right on his doctrine of revelation, um, especially with regard to or um, relative to uh, God's interaction with history. Okay, whether or not the revelation takes place in history, our history. Um, So, you know, I mean, as to the first point, whether or not Van Til got uh, Kant right, um, I, I think I think he did, but I'm no Kant scholar either, so I don't know. But quite frankly. At at the end of the day, uh, Van Til's critique of Bart um, doesn't hinge upon getting Kant right necessarily. Um, his his critique comes down to a commonality between Kant and Bart. The question is, does he get Bart right? Does Van Til get Bart right? Um, and uh, the the common theme between his critique of Kant and then his critique of of Bart is um, no direct revelation. Okay, that God has not revealed Himself directly um, to man. By way of um, you know something that man has access to, such as um, history, um, uh, nature, um, uh, the Bible, you know, written word, whatever. Um, so that's going to be the essence of of his critique. So, um, wh- I think that McCormick uh, misunderstands uh, Van Til's critique of of Kant's epistemology. Um, and uh, but I'm not interested in getting into that in great detail as much as I am interested in the way in which McCormick um, reacts against Van Til's critique of Bart's view of revelation. That's the more pertinent point uh, that needs to be discussed here. See, and I think I think um, uh, that that what McCormick is doing, uh, as I read him, um, and, and and McCormick says. The point at which they have their greatest disagreement uh, between the disagreement between Van Til and Bart is on this issue of direct revelation, whether or not God has directly revealed Himself. Um, That is, you know, uh, McCormick is absolutely right. That's the point at which all everything hinges. Um, Now, I think that McCormick may have uh, Doctor McCormick may have. erred in understanding or trying to understand uh, Van Til's understanding of what direct revelation is. Uh, It seems to me that the way McCormick is understanding Van Til is that Van Til means kind of a um, – when God reveals himself directly, what he has in view there is sort of this naked view of God, God without any medium, um, as if to behold the very essence of God himself. And Van Til would reject any type of notion of being able – us human beings being able to to, to see – or to partake in, in an ontological way, um, the, the, the divine nature without any type of medium, um, he would reject that. Mm-hmm. Um, what Van Til has in view when he speaks about direct revelation is, in fact, the medium – or the media or the, or the particular medium itself, okay? Um, so what Van Til wants to say is that God has revealed himself in history, in our real calendar time history in such a way that we have access to it. Um, He has revealed himself in the Bible, okay? Um, And from Genesis to Revelation, we have God's spoken and scripturated word through human authors inspired and thus because inspired and errant and infallible um and Vantill would want to affirm God's revelation of himself through the created order including through we ourselves who are made in the image and likeness of God something that Van, that Barth himself uh said nine to you know no you know no to natural uh theology or natural revelation right um And uh, Van Til wants to affirm that God has revealed himself in a way that we have it accessible to us. That's what he means by direct revelation. Um, He means that God has revealed himself in such a way that we have access to that revelation Um, and even, of course, most importantly – Eschatologically, God's revealed himself in his own son, mm-hmm. uh, Jesus Christ, as the apostle says, um, the apostle John, First John, what we have seen, what we have touched, what we have yeah. heard, right? That's direct revelation for Van Til. Jesus Christ is himself the eschatological, most ultimate expression and manifestation of God himself himself. In and through the medium of human flesh, right, um, and so we have uh, the 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 people who lived with Jesus back then had direct access, right? You know, that's that's direct revelation. There he is, right there, Jesus, in all of his glory, right? Is the revelation of God, right? Uh, that doesn't mean that God came through somehow in his pure divine nature without any medium, not at all. Um, that's not what he has in view. Uh, but what Bart. And, you know, going back to the article, um, McCormick seems to want to say that God reveals reveals Himself in the medium um, of of history, um, and 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 you know, real calendar time history, particularly in Jesus of Nazareth. Um, But we have to remember that according to Karl Barth, Revelation did not take place between the years 1 and and 30 A.D. Um, Revelation takes place, as we said in our previous episode, in the transcendent event of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is not Jesus of Nazareth, understand. Jesus Christ, according to Karl Barth, existed before Adam, right? Uh, Jesus Christ is – God – the revealing God and the receiving man. From all of eternity, well, actually, in this what we have called the third time, right? You know, time for us, God's time, time God's, time, God's for us. time for us, right? Mm-hmm. Which is the three D, right? The the third time, right? <laughs> the tertium quid uh, kind of category in which uh, God meets with man, the mm-hmm. reproachment between God and man, eternity and time, creator and creature. It all takes place in this uh, third time, uh, this God's time for us. Okay. Um, And see previous episode for for more explanation on that. Um, But for Karl Barth, revelation does not take place in real calendar time. That's his whole point. In episode
0: 206, we spoke with Kevin DeYoung about holiness and the doctrine of sanctification. Here's our last clip that we're including from 2011, and it's with Kevin DeYoung often when these types of discussions come up that people immediately draw the line between antinomian and mm-hmm. neonomian, how does this type of Christian life that, that you're presenting, which I think is thoroughly biblical, how is that not neonomian? I don't think it is. I'm, trying, I'm just asking, giving you opportunity to,
9: yeah. to say. Well, of course, you know, the terms can mean different things to different people, mm. and at some point they, they get bandied about as, we, we just know they're bad, and so I don't want to be called that. I don't want to be a legalist. I don't want to be a neonomian or yeah. an antinomian. Well, it's just what you said. Grace – law drives us to the gospel. That's mm-hmm. one of the uses of the law. But gospel also drives us to law. I mean the law in the Old Testament came after gospel, after I'm the God who delivered you out of Egypt. First was deliverance, and then our commands – so it's not that the, the commands are somehow now bad news. I think we've right. – th- there is a helpful theological law-gospel distinction, but it can really be pressed too far and be the only grid through which we look at everything. And so it's either, well, that's law or that's gospel. It's mm. either good news or you're telling me to do something. When, you know, isn't it amazing at the end of First John – writer says, uh, and his commands are not burdensome. Exactly.
1: Mm-hmm. What? Yeah.
0: <laughs> and, or, and, or a passage like Genesis 1-1. Why, is that it, law or gospel? You yeah. Know, right. it, it's yeah. difficult. It,
2: yeah. It's not one extreme or the other. There's, there are different other factors uh, yeah, yeah. involved. And I think this is going to sound typical coming from us, but um, oftentimes gospel is defined as uh, forensic justification by faith and then end of story. And so at an alpha point of your salvation, when you, quote, get converted, you're justified and then... Post Alpha Point, you're saying now, what do I do? Justification is the gospel, so it, am I supposed to act constantly? Or what am I supposed to do? And then sanctification is defined in terms of that. I think what we want to say is that the the forensic element is a is a benefit. You know, justification is a benefit of our union, so is sanctification mm-hmm. so is adoption. Um, but oftentimes these, I think there's a counseling aspect to saying. Um, justification is very important for this person who might lean towards antinomian or neunomian or, or something like that, but that the structure of the gospel itself may not be encapsulated in just that element.
9: Mm. Well, it's, and I know you, you guys are have a heart and rightfully so for union with Christ and you know what Calvin or theologians called it, the duplex gratia yeah. or the yeah, mm-hmm. the double grace, that it is it is this gift of justification and it is a gift of sanctification, but it, it's a different kind of gift and But they're inextricable, mm-hmm. and you can't have one without the other. And so is sanctification God's work? Yes. Is it our work? Yes. And people uh, you know, sometimes get into these dead ends with, well, is it monergistic or synergistic? Yeah. And I wrote a whole long piece about that on, on my blog, and I basically said I just don't think those are the right terms because those terms are used reference to regeneration and whether – we participate somehow in our being born again, and the Bible clearly teaches that we don't. But all of the, the Reformed theologians from Hodge to Calvin to Burkoff to Bavinck have have not had a problem using this language of cooperation. Synergism is too scary, so we, we just won't use it. But monergism doesn't get it right either. I mean by the, by only one working. Well – no, you work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Mm-hmm. I mean, all of the language in Scripture of effort, I mean, it's just there. And so let's not be smarter than Scripture and say, well, I don't want to talk about striving or effort or diligence. Well, that's the way God talks about it, mm-hmm. so we shouldn't right. be afraid.
0: Well, that does it for another year of Christ the Center. 2011 has been another exciting year. We've, we've grown quite a bit. We have many new listeners, and we're very thankful for that. Uh, Please tell your friends about us and go and continue to spread Reformed Theology through this very accessible uh, and friendly medium. And we really appreciate all the visits we have to the website and all the downloads and all the mentions on Twitter, etc. If you'd like to contact us, please get a hold of us at mail at reformedforum.org or you can tweet us at reformedforum. And of course, we continue to ask that you would visit us online, especially this time of year at reformedforum.org slash donate. I want to thank everybody for listening. We hope you join us again for another year on Christ the Center.